0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Convocation of Catholic Leaders. At this time, please give a warm welcome to the stage, the Director of the Office of Missionary Discipleship, Donna Ottaviano-Britt.
1: Welcome, and I welcome you to the convocation of Catholic leaders, the joy of the gospel in South Jersey. Are you excited? I'm glad you're excited because so are we. We are delighted that you are here. This was a moment long in the making, so I'd like to talk to you for a minute about what was planned here. So this moment that we're experiencing together is a part of your journey, our journey. And it's also a part of a story that we will tell about our faith journey with God. But more importantly, what this also is, is a spiritual gift from a shepherd to his flock. Bishop Dennis Sullivan has great hope for those for whom he is responsible. And that is to get us to heaven. And that is no small task. So, with that, he knows we have to live our baptismal call. And that is a call to discipleship. And if we are answering our call to discipleship, that also means we need to form other disciples. That means we have to move out of our churches, we have to go out into the community. There are many in need. And they are right in our backyards in our own parishes. So today in this room, we are nearly 800 strong. And each of us has been called to this place and time. We were called and we gave our fiat. Each of you said yes. Our team dedicated all of our efforts. And we entrusted ourselves to the Blessed Lady and to the Holy Spirit. That they would guide us to delivering something to you that was transforming and powerful. So that together, we will set holy fire to South Jersey. Amen, right? It gives me goosebumps every time I think about what we're going to be able to do here. And I always figure that's the Holy Spirit saying, that was a good thing to say, Donna. (laughs) Because I didn't think of any of it on my own. Your pastors have asked you to join them in the work of the church. You agreed and shared your abundant gifts generously with each other in those parish leadership team meetings that you have been having since January. Show of hands. Anybody say yes? Not really sure what you may have been saying yes to. That's good because so did I. We are in very good company together. I would like to spend a moment talking to you about you. Because you are remarkable. Each of you is a personal and beautiful story that has brought you to this moment. You have been so willing to share. I have been honored to meet many of you at your parish meetings. I have been privileged to work with the point delegate leaders from each parish for these last several months as you prepared and journeyed to the convocation. You have filled me and I have shared with the steering committee all of that. You have filled us with holy hope in the work that we were doing for the past year. This moment has been planned for a year. So with every interaction, every engagement, and every snag, you can't think we plan a moment this big and that we didn't hit an occasional snag, but it would miraculously solve itself. So thank you to the Holy Spirit for that. And that was really our experience together over the last year, but our engagement with you, pastors and lady who are gathered here never once did we not think you weren't all in. It was clear. You are leaders who are about to blaze a path across the diocese. In my role, I support you and your leadership teams, as well as the Easter work you will choose to pursue. You are going to attract people to come and work in the Mission Hospital. Did you ever notice how beautiful, holy people are, think about the holiest person you know. They radiate beauty. And that's what you look like today, sitting here in this place. You are beautiful because you are holy. And together, as laity and clergy you are going to create a ripple effect of God's goodness. That's what we're going to do together. A ripple effect that will move out across our diocese, and I would bet you beyond that. The church has everything that she needs to renew and refresh. She can engage the culture and bring God to the people. There are many in need of God's love and mercy, and we know them. They're in all manner of places. They're in our homes, they're in our families, they're in our workplaces, and they're in our communities. But we must be willing to share our own story of God's transforming beauty in our own lives. And it's a willingness to share the low points in our lives where God has journeyed with us and the, and the joyful times in our lives. Because we get to bring those stories into the lives of others. So it's really important that we have an internal check on what has been our story. I'll give you a tiny example. Some of you know. I am actually with the diocese one year this week. So I came here a year ago after being laid off from a company that I'd worked with for 30 years. So I'm here, so Jesus is funny. All in Holy Week, I lose one job and I'm offered this one. (laughs) Previous colleagues have asked me, like, so what are you doing? And I tell them, I'm a meeting planner for Jesus. But I'm a meeting planner for Jesus and 800 of his beloved. What a privilege for me to plan a meeting for Jesus with 800 of his beloved. So the church's gifts in each of you and the others abound. What we need to do is identify them. We need to harness them and we need to unleash them. There's so much, so much giftedness sitting in this room that we are going to unleash the giftedness that's here and find the others who also have gifts that the church possesses. We have to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That is our responsibility. These days here are intended to feed you, to nourish your spirits, to harvest your creativity so that we can be the missionary disciples of the 21st century. Not one moment of this whole convocation that you will experience is in isolation. Everything is planned and intended to build and to be integrated. So please take advantage of everything that's been planned for you this, for these few days that we are together. These moments are rare for us to be able to come together and share our faith and grow and share ideas. So please take advantage of that. Nothing happens in a vacuum, and we're all going to do this together, including the fact that it will not just be me on stage this week, sort of journeying with you to be your guide for the few days that we're together. So, who I'm going to bring to stage next is my partner. Seems bad to say partner in crime, so I won't. My partner in holiness, Deacon Anthony Cio.
2: Good afternoon. It is so good to be with all of you today. I feel like I'm in the room with 700 friends. And if I am her partner in crime, that's a good thing, because that means that I'm the assistant planner for Jesus. I'm happy to do that. Donna, you've described our mission so beautifully, but what I would like to do is just kind of give you a little taste of how this mission started. In July of 2017, the USCCB held the Convocation of Catholic Leaders, Joy of the Gospel, in the United States. 3,500 delegates from throughout the United States attended to hear this message about our call to missionary discipleship. Our bishop led a delegation of almost 30 people there, and what we heard was amazing. Donna said goosebumps, and they were really the Holy Spirit inspiring. Every time I think about what happened at that convocation, and I get the goosebumps, I know that it was the Holy Spirit who is leading us. We came away with a great message. We came away focused on reaching out beyond our church walls, reaching out to the peripheries of society to animate our church. Each of us has been called to be here, to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and to use our own unique gifts and talents in multiple ways. We're being called to lead, and later this week, we'll be sent out on mission to work for our Lord and Savior. What you will witness over the next several days is not an isolated series of events. As Donna mentioned, They are all related. Each builds upon the other. So please attend everything and let it build within you that the message and what we have to do comes out very well. The events are all centered around prayer and spiritual strength. I'm going to be departing from this stage in a moment. But at this time, what I would like to do is introduce Josh Miller, who is going to be moderating our conversations over the next few days. Josh is the co-author of Unrepeatable, Cultivating the Unique Calling of Every Person, and the accompanying workbook, Unrepeatable Life, an eight-week program for discerning personal vocation. Josh is also the co-founder of InScape, an organization devoted to cultivating personal vocation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Josh Miller.
3: So this place over here on the podium is going to be my little zone uh, during the keynotes, but I also very much want it to be a place for interacting uh, with all of you. Each of you brings your own history, your own gifts, your own perspective, your own questions, your own zeal to this convocation. And so I'm going to have the opportunity to interact with the the plenary speakers and share some of my own questions and insights. But I don't want to be here just with my own questions, because I know each one of you is beloved of God. You've got your own history, and I want you to interact. So I would like your apps to be like lighting up with questions that are going to go to the back to Mike. And have you interact with the speakers uh, as we're here together in, in conversation, but perhaps more importantly than that, it's also critical during these days that we cultivate one another. It's true that we are to go out. It's true that we are called to be the light of Christ in South Jersey. It's also true that while here, we have the opportunity to cultivate one another And that's what also the Holy Spirit wants of us. So thanks very much. Looking forward to being with you, Anthony. Donna?
1: Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Josh. So we're going to do a couple of things, uh, housekeeping, right, to make sure that uh, you have a very good experience while you're here. So the first thing I would like to do is, and it's important, in order to make this event possible, we have some sponsors. So we want to make sure that we're recognizing them, and you can see their names here on the screen. So we are grateful to their contributions to this convocation. As I said, Anthony and I are here to be your guides for the convocation and ensure the smoothness of this event for all of you. So kindly feel free to let us know if there's anything else that we, if there's anything, I shouldn't say else yet anyway, it's only the first day, Uh, if there's anything we may have missed or anything you want to inform us of, so we would appreciate that. Now, we have a couple of things housekeeping for you so that you'll be familiar and aware. So let's talk about the voice. So you heard the voice introduce me in the very beginning. And periodically we may hear from Tom, and that will be important. So Tom, would you like to say hello to the people?
0: Hello, people.
1: (laughs) So that's Tom. So, he'll be the one that when your questions come in the back, he'll ask them of Josh when he's up here on stage. So, I wanted you to be familiar with the voice. And so, with that, those are your housekeeping notes, things to make your experience here smooth.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, please welcome to the stage, once again, Deacon Anthony Co.
2: Pope Francis is calling us to raise up missionary disciples, to create a culture that goes out to the peripheries, social, economic, physical, and spiritual peripheries, to go out to where people are in their journey, to meet them where they are, and again, not where we expect them to be. What we have here is not just a one-time encounter, but we need to create an environment that helps people to meet Christ over and over again. We know that the Holy Spirit is the principal agent of evangelization and we look forward to continuing to feel the presence over the next several days. There's no better person that we could have thought of to provide our first keynote address. Her topic will be missionary people It's my honor to introduce Julianne Stans. She's Director of Discipleship and Leadership Development for the Diocese of Green Bay, Wisconsin. She's passionate about parish life and living a joyful Catholic faith. She's a consultant to the USCCB Committee on Catechesis and Evangelization under the chairmanship of, get this, Bishop Barron. Yes. She's the author of the book Developing Disciples of Christ and co author of the book The Catechist Backpack Spiritual Essentials for the Journey. She also blogs monthly for the website The Catechist Journey. She's happily married to Wayne, and they have three children two sons and a daughter. And when she opens her mouth to speak, you're going to be so happy to not hear this South Jersey accent for a while. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Julianne Stans. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. God bless you. Okay, here you go.
4: Good evening, everybody. So recently, I learned that when you're excited in America, you say "woohoo," right? So I want you to try it with me. If you're excited to be here and filled with the Holy Spirit, I want you to shout out one, two, three. That's pretty awesome. Now, because I am Irish, I'm going to share with you how we say woohoo, which is very different. It's you. So we're going to try it. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're on fire after that beautiful Mass, in three, two, one, you. OK, so I'm going to be doing quite a few youths through my talk today, but first of all, I just want to thank each one of you for being here. Each one of you, like Bishop said, is a leader of the church we love. And you were called to be here, not just today, but to be in leadership at this time in the church. When I was 14, I made a promise to the Lord that I had no idea what I was doing. I grew up in a very, very small mountainous village in the Wicklow Mountains. Everybody knew everybody. I could not get away with any mischief because I had 67 first cousins. When I was 14, I took a school trip to the top of Ireland's holiest mountain, a place called Crow Patrick. And without knowing what I was doing, I said, because my heart was so moved after this experience, wherever you go, Lord, I will follow you. Wherever you send me, I will go joyfully and willingly. And so he called me to the frozen tundra of Wisconsin. (laughs) Now I'm going to tell you, I had never even heard of Wisconsin. And so I left uh, Ireland, working at a university, a very, very good job, to become a missionary to the United States. And with $200 and two suitcases, I set out 17 years ago to make a life for myself. This year, on October 18th, I stood in front of a judge. And I repeated the words, we the people, because I had just taken the oath to become a US citizen. Thank you. Not going to lie, I always say to people, Ireland is my homeland, but America is my heartland. We the people, we the missionary people are called today to live the joy of the gospel. And the word joy stands for Jesus, others, yourself, J-O-Y. If you live your life in that order, it does not make for an easy life, but it makes for a life of complete freedom and joy in the Lord. And so no one could have been more surprised than myself when a year and a half ago, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops called 5,000 leaders from all over the U.S. and their territories together for the joy of the Gospel Convocation in Orlando, Florida. And I found myself on stage for those four days as co-emcee with the Bishop of Dallas. I'm not going to lie. It was four Tough days, but I got to see the beauty of Catholicism and those who are living out their faith every day in such a powerful way. And I think we saw that today from the altar server who sat here during the Magnificat with his eyes closed because he was so moved singing to the gentleman I saw kneeling in the back with his head in his hands after taking the Eucharist. My heart is so moved. The Holy Spirit is here with you, and there is no better time for you to step up and be co-responsible for the church we love. So I'm going to share with you a story that just breaks my heart. This is my son, Ian. Ian, um, he loves art. He, He painted this picture, Starry, Starry Night, and I didn't tell him, but I had his image screened onto a skirt. And when he received this award, I turned up with my skirt while he received this little award. He was mortified, I'll tell you that. (laughs) But of all the moments I have had in serving the church in America, the one that literally dropped me to my knees with sadness was the morning I went to wake up my then three-year-old son for Mass. Now. Like most little kids, they measure their time as what's going on that day. If it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's preschool. If it's Saturday, we usually do something in the morning and then we hang out, do some chores. If it's Sunday, that means church. Now, we have one option for Mass in my hometown on the shores of Lake Michigan, and it is at 8.15. 8.15, if you're not a morning person, I am not. Is really tough. In fact, some of you are probably feeling me right now. I'm a night gal. I come alive at night and I see these people cycling their bikes at five o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, what? Who are these people? <laughs> My son, unfortunately, has her- inherited a little bit of this, um, not so happy about the mornings. But I went up and I said, Ian, it's time to get out of bed. And he said, What day is it, Mum? And I said, it's time for Mass. And he said, I don't want to go. And I thought, first of all, I thought, Lord have mercy, we are not going through this at uh, three years of age. And my mind flashed to all of the reasons why a three-year-old might not want to go to Mass. They can't see very well. I, I will admit, I don't allow them to snatch you in Mass. I won't let him bring his truck. I thought he was going to say something around those reasons. But what he said changed how I looked at my ministry. He said, Mom, I don't want to go to Mass because nobody looks happy there. And I thought, what does my son see at Mass on Sunday? What does he see as... We come up to receive the most amazing gift of our faith, the presence of Jesus Christ in his very body and blood in the Eucharist. Does he see us come up to receive with true thanksgiving in our hearts? And then I thought, what does he see in me? Does he see me rushing around on Sunday mornings? Come on, get up out of bed, we have to go. Why is your hair sticking up? that is for sure your dad's side of the family. (laughs) And I thought, what do the people see? Do they see us as missionary people who receive the Eucharist and then become what I like to call tabernacles with feet where we bring the Eucharist to every person we meet in the joy of the gospel? It changed everything about how I saw us as a people yearning to bring people into the joy of the gospel. So Ian's story is going to come up throughout my talk, but right now I want to take you back to Matthew 14:30, And the disciples are in a boat. And I live on the shores of Lake Michigan, where when we get a storm, and it's cold in Lake Michigan and those waves start coming up and the wind is howling, I can imagine being out in the water on the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., and experiencing the same fear that the disciples must have felt. And all of a sudden, they see a figure on the water, and Peter, ever the impetuous hot-headed one, I think he had an Irish mother, must have jumped out of the boat. And we are told in Matthew 14.30 that for a second he walked on water. And then taking his eyes off Jesus and becoming fixed on the storm, he started to sink and cried out what is perhaps the desperate and most shortest prayer in the Bible, Lord, save us. Lord, save me. And we are told immediately the Lord reached out and caught his hand. Right now, it may feel like that we are in the midst of a storm of scandals, that the media is whipping up around us, And quite frankly, that we have to take seriously. But the disciples were not defined by the storm and neither are we. Peter, the impetuous, hot-headed, could walk on water when he fixed his eyes on Jesus Christ. And that is a lesson for us. It is no time for us to be focused on the storm. This is the time to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Because you know what? You don't leave Jesus because of Judas. We don't leave, we lead. And each one of us, by virtue of our baptism as a baptized disciple of the Lord, has been gifted with the grace To be called forth at this time in the history of our church to lead. And if each of us would reach one person, we would change the world. Each one, reach one, teach one person. The gospel has been gossiped for 2,000 years from village to village. It's time for us to get on the streets, to move ourselves out into real life where people are and bring the joy of the gospel. Our stories, our heart, our love for our church. This is one of my favorite quotes from Pope Francis. One of the great challenges facing the church in this generation generation, is to foster in all of the faithful a sense of personal responsibility for the church's mission and to enable them to fulfill that responsibility as missionary disciples, as 11 of the gospel in our world. This is no time to be complacent. And it is no time to say, I'm sorry, faith is private. Faith is not private. Faith is personal, and there is a difference. Each one of you knows somebody who is not practicing their faith. And the statistics on this are grim. For every one person that comes into the church, received through the RCIA process, six and a half existing Catholics will leave. And the average age that a young person decides to stop identifying with the body of Christ is between the ages of 10 and 20, with the average age being 13. I want to let that sink in. Thirteen. It doesn't mean that they're leaving. They're still in front of us. They are in our homes. They are in our religious education programs. They are in our Catholic schools. And all it takes is for you and I to reach out to be the hands, the feet, and the body of Christ. So I think sometimes we think that other people have to do all the work because we're not holy enough, worthy enough, smart enough. But you have been called. And so, one of my favorite writers and authors is Father Raniero Cantalamessa. He is the papal preacher at the Vatican. Could you imagine if that was your job to preach in front of the Pope? And he has held that role all the way from St. John Paul II to Pope Francis today. He says that you and I, as lay leaders in the church, are the nuclear bomb of the new evangelization. And the core of that nuclear bomb is the baptism into which we were all brought into the beauty and the joy of this community of faith. And so this is a document called Christi Fidelis Leice, which I would encourage you to read. It says, this personal vocation and mission defines the dignity and responsibility of each member of the lay faithful. It's time for us to step up, to be co-responsible with our pastors and our bishops, to lead the church we love. Jesus Christ himself is depending on it. And I think sometimes we have this mindset, like, how do we get all the people out there in here But the missionary mindset is, how do we get all the people in here, out there, reaching for Jesus Christ? And the Blessed Mother, this convocation couldn't have come at a more blessed time for you. This is the enunciation of the joy of the gospel for your diocese. Our Lady will walk with you. And when you need to ponder In your heart and when you need to move in haste, she will lead you. My grandmother used to say this a lot. Her name was Hannah. She was an incredible woman. A a missionary disciple in word, thought and deed. An arrow that's aimed at the head will not pierce the heart. And what we need today is to pierce the heart of our young people, our young adults, and those who have grown weary of the practice of their faith. You see, there's a reason St. John Paul II, in his wisdom, called for a new evangelization, and not just a new catechesis. We have more books than ever before, right? More programs than ever before. But what is needed today is to bring the joy of the gospel, and yes, catechesis, strong. Faithful catechesis is part of that. See, young people are not asking the questions that many of us grew up with, which is what and how questions. How do I get to heaven? What does the church teach? They are asking questions more of who and why. Why do you believe? What do I do with the anxiety that is gnawing at my heart? And we have a responsibility to speak to those yearnings. So we have to pierce the hearts of our young people for Jesus. And how do we do that? Jesus had a very, very simple methodology. Simple does not mean easy. Simple does not mean easy. And I have to tell you, I have grown weary in my work throughout the country, of seeing uh, companies tell us that this is the book to use, or um, consulting firms say this is the way we form disciples. The church, in her wisdom, has 2,000 years of testimony to a methodology that Jesus used to form disciples that is simple, powerful, and bold, and I want to teach it to you today in the time that I have left. The thing that I would say is when we focus on programs and events and opportunities rather than our people, we've got a problem. Pope Francis said that we have reached as a church what he calls diagnostic overload, which is caused by a flurry of activity and dwindling financial and personnel resources. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I became the director of new evangelization for the Diocese of Green Bay about eight years ago, I was invited to come out and speak to a group of pastors. They were very specific about the time they needed me to be there and leave. You need to be there at 4 o'clock, and you need to leave at 5 o'clock. And I asked, why 5 on the dot? And they said, because we have our Manhattans at 5 (laughs) o'clock. Great, guys. So I go in. I'm relatively new in my position. I knock on the door, and I hear one of them say, who's there? And I say, it's Julianne from the diocese, and I hear someone else say, it's the lady to talk to us about the evangelization stuff. So I come into the room, and there is a chair sitting in the middle of what must be the tiniest room in the history of rooms, and a semicircle of pastors sitting around me. And so I started to talk with them a little bit, and all of a sudden, one hand went up from the brave Father Kevin. And he said to me, isn't this stuff, like, evangelization and discipleship kind of a fad and a trend if we just keep if we just keep going and ignoring it you guys are going to focus on something else like a new theme and i said where is this coming from and he said because you know julianne i have been ordained for 28 years and it's always something isn't it he said first we were told that if we focused all of our efforts on youth we're going to have an amazing church and young adults And stewardship, and on and on and on. So he goes, I just need to know why. And I gave him this image, which is the image I would give to you right now. Roots before fruits. What we had done was we had concentrated on all of the branches of the tree, our ministerial branches. Youth ministry, young adult ministry, adult faith formation, stewardship. And we all tried making those branches as healthy as we could without nourishing the trunk and the roots of our tree. The roots of our tree are discipleship. And if you nourish the roots, you're going to have some... That was the most mourning crowd I've ever heard. Let's try this one again. Before we nourish our roots, or before we go to fruits, we must nourish our... Much better. You! Okay. Does this make sense for you? Yeah. Okay. So, and, and the thing that I love about this image, is it's so patristic as well, is that the roots store energy and release them up into the tree, and the leaves that are out there reaching for God's people are in contact with light, and they bring that down and, and into the trunk of the tree and down into the roots. So there's this exchange going on all the time between lay people... And our priests, our deacons, our sisters, all of us working to strengthen our tree, our discipleship tree. So I want to give you what has been variously called Jesus' very simple method of discipleship, the model me, modeled by the master. Four stages. The first thing that we know Jesus did when he, he went out and encountered people was he said, come to me. Come to me, all you who are wearied and are burdened. And it was only after that they had an encounter with Jesus did he say, follow me. And then when he had spent time with the disciples, did he say, remain united with me. And that happened in the breaking of the bread and the Eucharist and the Last Supper. And the last earthly words that the disciples heard from Jesus his last will and testimony in a sense was go and make disciples. See one of the problems I think is that we are we are asking to go and make disciples without saying to people come and spend time with the Lord first. Now come and see is different than go and learn come and learn. That's important. But we can't just say come and learn we also need to say go and teach. So I'm going to show you my great big ugly chart. And it is ugly. There's no other way I could put this in front of you. Stay with me for a minute. Jesus' methodology is on the bottom. Come and see. Okay? This is come and see. We would call this pre-evangelization. The second stage in the process of evangelization as laid out in the general directory for catechesis, this one is the follow me stage. You can take pictures on your phone. But I know that the conference organizers will make sure that you have all of this information too. When we get to this stage of discipleship, this is the remaining united with me in the Eucharist stage. And finally, we have the go and make disciples stage of missionary discipleship. Jesus' four-part process. You may have heard Pope Francis use the same terms. Encounter, come and see. Accompaniment, follow me. Remain united, community and go and and make disciples, mission. What's interesting is this is where the vast majority of Catholic parishioners are. They're in a stage of pre-evangelization, meaning that they cannot articulate a significant encounter with the Lord. And what this looks like, somebody said to me, what does it look like in this stage for your stewardship efforts? It looks like this. In pre-evangelization, there is no relational context for giving. So it looks like tipping for Jesus. A buck here and a buck there. But as people come into contact and relationship with the Lord, everything, as you know, in your life changes. How you parent, how you live, and how you give. So service looks different. Relationship methodologies that work here Healing, hope, hospitalities, sharing our stories, all absolutely critical. Now, where does uh, catechesis fall? Catechesis can fall at every stage. However, it is most fruitful right between these two areas. So you can have the most amazing speaker for your Lenten mission, You can have the most amazing book that you're giving out at Christmas and you wonder why all the people are not taking you up on this. It's because they're not there. It's not what they need at that stage. So what percentage, I want you to just do a little mental math here, what percentage of Catholic parishioners may be in this stage of pre-evangelization? Just think about it for a minute. It's about 70 to 85%. About 70 to 85%. You have to remember that a study that was conducted a number of years ago indicated that 52% of all Catholics do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It's almost half. It's almost half. This is our mission field. And if you think about an image for this, I like to use the iceberg image. What we see at the top in our parishes is often those who are most committed and most participatory in terms of what they're doing for us. And the pastor said to me recently, I see quite a, f- a number of people out of my 600 families. And I said, I, w- I want to do an exercise with you. Let's come up with the list of all of your Knights of Columbus, your catechists, your board of education, your choir, and on and on and on. And you know what we noticed? Many of the same people. Right? Many of the same people. Growing our communities is as simple as each one of us committing to reach one new person personally. And growing that person as a disciple. I have three questions that I like people to reflect on when in their personal life and in their ministry what do I need to start do- doing? What do I need to stop doing? And what do we need to keep doing? Because as people move into this missionary paradigm I've noticed in parishes, they like to do a lot of stuff. But busy does not mean effective. And we got a lot going on in our parishes. But you know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, go and make bingo players of all nations. Although bingo is lovely. Or fish fry eaters of all nations. Or picnickers of all nations. He said, go and make disciples. That's our mission. And Pope Francis tells us that each one of us doesn't have a mission. You are a mission. I am a mission. Say it with me. I. I am a mission. You are a mission. And each one of us has a mission. I am a mission. He said this at the canonization of Juniper Sarah. Beautiful, beautiful address if you ever want to read it on missionary discipleship. Each one of us needs to ask these questions. What do we need to start doing? That stop doing. Stopping doing things that we've always done is very hard for us as parishes because we have those words. What words? We have always done it this way. That is not the tune of Catholic life. What Mary teaches us is rejoice and be glad. Blessed are you, holy are you. So we have to stop. We've got to, in order for our tree of parish life to be healthy, we've got to prune off a number of things that are no longer serving us well. Because there's no point pruning a dead tree, right? So we've got to prune some things. I use this all, all the time. And in fact, this schema of start, stop, and keep doing is picked up in Evangelii Gaudium. Pope Francis lays out a three-step process for us in there. Purification, discernment, and reform. Purification, discernment, and reform. So, as I think about parish life and I think about each one of you, you're now entering the mission field, which is the world. The job, the function, the vocation to which the lay people are called is to sanctify the world. And our pastors have the responsibility to sanctify each one of us so that we can go out like St. Teresa of Avila and be the hands and the feet. And the voice of Christ in all that we say and do. So I want to take you back to my son Ian. Precious little boy. One day we were sitting in Mass and he said, "Um, Mom, what's happening now? And I'm like, This is the time when we go up to receive Jesus in the Eucharist. And by the way, I saw somebody do this today, moved me to tears. I saw the person go up to receive Jesus. And as, as I saw them lift up the Eucharist to, re- to, to receive it, to consume Jesus, they said, I love you. I love you. So one day I'm getting my three-year-old, and he's on my hip, and we're going up to receive Jesus in the Eucharist, and my son lets out a shout. Now, mamas and papas, you've been there when your kids have had these moments. And he shouts out at the top of his voice, Come on, everybody, let's get moving for Jesus. (laughs) And I thought to myself, isn't that the truth? So in 2017, at the Joy of the Gospel Conference in Orlando, which was the first conference that the U.S. bishops had called of this nature since 1917, I found myself on stage with one of our speakers that did not turn up. And so I conferred with the bishop of Dallas, Bishop Burns, and said, you know, going to do a little wing in it here. I'm Irish. Words are not a problem for me. He goes, for me either. I said, okay, I'm going to share this story. And I did. And at the very end of the convocation, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, who is the apostolic nuncio, Stood up and gave this amazing address to the people of America, to the Church of America, about our mission to go out to encounter people with the joy of the gospel alive in our hearts. And he ended with that story Come on, everybody, let's get moving for Jesus. Now, I do not speak Spanish, and I missed it. And everyone is looking, going, Yay, this is great, and they're waving and smiling. And I'm waving back, had no idea what he said. (laughs) And a friend of mine ran like Mary Magdalene from the empty tomb up the aisle to me and said, he said, it's time to get moving for Jesus. And it is. This is no time for us to be comfortable or complacent. Each one of you has been called by the Lord and you will be equipped if you lean into him with a deep breath of prayer in your heart. Maybe you think you're not worthy enough, or holy enough, or smart enough, or know enough. I can tell you, you never get to a point in your life where you're any of those things. There's always work to do. But the Lord is relying on each one of us. And if you love the church of this beautiful diocese, As much as I think you do, you are going to get on your feet right now and say, Come on, everyone, let's get moving for Jesus. Right? So let's get on our feet, people. One, two, three. Come on, everyone, let's get moving for Jesus. You! Okay, you can sit down. I want to encourage you over the next three days to give this your all. To give it your all. Let this be a place of true mercy and encounter with the people who are here, but more deeply with the presence of God. I know you're tired. I see it in your faces. And I especially see it in the faces of our pastors. You are tired, you have 50 different hats you're wearing. But you love, and you can do this. And the Lord will renew and refresh and restore us if we lean into his love. With the joy of the gospel in my heart, you cannot imagine how touched I've been by what I've seen moving here. As I travel throughout the country, I've seen plenty of gatherings, but something is moving and alive right here. And that something or someone is the Holy Spirit. Thank you. So at this time, I believe we're going to have a conversation about what you've just heard. And you are invited to share your thoughts, comments, and questions, which um, I would like to respond to as best as I can, because it's time to get practical. How do we do this, right? Okay.
3: So, Julianne, I'm not from Ireland or from South Jersey, but I did a time uh, of living in the South. And in the South, we say, yee So, I won't ask the guests gathered here to do that, but I had the experience of those goosebumps that we spoke about earlier, and the vitality and the strength of the Holy Spirit working in you today. Oh, you. I want to ask you a question, but before I do so, I want to preface with um, just a reflection on why we have so much trouble, perhaps sometimes, in getting moving for Jesus, Sometimes if our eyes are clouded and we don't see ourselves properly or we don't see others properly, we can't act. Mm -hmm. So we know the answers. We know what we ought to do, but we have trouble doing so. And what I want to suggest is that what you're inviting us to is a paradigm shift in terms of how we see ourselves. And sometimes all it takes is a shift of, of seeing ourselves differently to enable us to have... The openness of the Holy Spirit so we can then move. Uh, a lot of us have read the book, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he tells a story of a paradigm shift. And I was thinking and praying about your talk. I, I turned to that because it was one of those moments where he was able to move quickly to an act of compassion after a paradigm shift. So he's in the subway, many of you know the story, and there's a man there who is letting his kids run all up and down. They're being loud and obnoxious and and rowdy and Covey's sitting there with the man and the man's absent minded, he's not paying attention so Covey leans over and he says, your kids are, are being loud and obnoxious here, can you do something about that and the man says well we've just come from the hospital where their mother has just died, my wife and I guess they're just acting out because they don't know what to do so what Covey saw was, of course, instantly changed. And because of that, he was able to be triggered into an act of great, great compassion. So I wonder if some of us think about ourselves not as tabernacles with feet, and we have a weak understanding of baptism. We might be card-carrying members of the church, we might be members of a, of a, of a parish, but the idea of being partakers of the divine nature... Which we read today Bishop read today in mass Which he spoke in his homily Which you gave great color to And you described us as being Tabernacles with feet After we received the Eucharist It seems to me We have trouble seeing of ourselves As Jesus He's over there We're just his followers But you're teaching us In your presentation That we are Christ's hands and feet We participate in his very life uh, so my first question for you is: We want to move into action. What are some ways that we can shift paradigm so that we see ourselves as being Christ to the world?
4: Yeah, and can I? Would you permit me a little Irish, little Irishism here? I'd like to share a little story with you about Saint Patrick, which directly relates to this point. Yes. So, would you, if you just let me uh, give me a, a few minutes, I'd like to share because I think this has great relevance for how we see ourselves sometimes. St. Patrick, to prepare himself for Christ's mission to go out to be a missionary to the people of Ireland, people that he was enslaved by. Um, He was enslaved on a mountain called Slamish on the the coasts of Ireland where he tended the pigs. And the Lord worked something in his heart and he came back to the Irish, the very same people who had enslaved him, and to prepare himself to go out to share the gospel, he decided to spend 40 days and 40 nights on a mountain in Ireland that's called Crowpatrick. It was the same mountain I climbed when I was 14. And the legend tells us that as St. Patrick was going up the mountain, he carried two things with him. He carried a stick for walking, and he carried a bell, his cligging. He would ring that bell. That was his announcement that he was in a village and people could pray with him. Now the legend tells us that he went up fasting, so it's a great story for Lent.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: As he was going up the mountain, uh, a flock of blackbirds or crows and they're the great big, fat ones, almost like little ravens we call them in Ireland, preacon. And they started circling around Patrick's head, and then he was tired and cold and hungry, and they peck, peck, pecked at him. And he kept ringing his bell, and eventually would, they would disperse. And he rang his prayer bell so long and so hard that eventually they went away. And he was delighted. And he got to the top of the mountain, which is a tough climb. And as he was standing at the top of the mountain, the greatest demon of all came to Patrick. Now stay with me and I'll explain the symbolism in a minute. A great snake came to Patrick. And Patrick said, who are you? Identify yourself. And the snake said, I am the mother of the devil. It's a terribly wicked concept. And he took his stick and he gave her an almighty whack. Now, he didn't kill her. She slithered off into a lake that's called Lake, Lar- uh, lake Corpest, the lake of the serpent. What does that have to do with this? Any time you set out to do the Lord's work, the blackbirds or demons of doubt will plague you. And sometimes they come from within yourself. Who am I to be called to do the Lord's work? The only way you can conquer those doubts is by keeping your heart and your mind and your focus fixed on God. Spend time dwelling in his word, reading sacred scripture. And sometimes those doubts come from other people. Well, look at you. Who do you think you are to be on stage in front of all these people? If only they knew what you were like in college. (laughs) when you get to the top of the mountain you feel like Lord here I am I am ready to do your will in Ireland the mother of the demon is pride pride was the mother of the devil you can never truly kill your own pride and anger and that's why you need to dwell in the Lord stay close to him remain faithful to him partake in the sacraments frequently Those are not optional for missionary disciples. And for parishes, as you are here together, you need to be praying with each other. I cannot tell you how many places I go where I see parishes where the staff do not attend Mass together. Where they do not have prayer time together built into their days. Our pews are going to remain empty. If our offices are full... And there's only four people in mass from our own communities where we are supposed to be faithful to him. When we are too busy to pray, we are not doing the work of the Lord. Prayer is not just food for the mission. It's fuel for the mission. And I think this is a real key point for you as parish leaders to be here to grapple with this, is to ask yourself how you have been faithful to the promise of the the Lord. As a team, journeying with each other so that you can prepare others because you cannot give what you do not have. Mm. You cannot evangelize others unless you have been evangelized yourself.
3: Julian, you spoke about how at this pre-evangelistic stage where 75% of Catholics find themselves, that we need to share our story Mm -hmm. and we need to be built up ourselves. What are some ways that ministry staff here who might be in that stage to some degree. We all are, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, How can we grow closer together in sharing our stories, building relationships in very practical ways so that we're not exhausted and have nothing left to give? How can we be built up?
4: That's a really good question. One, I think we have to be in touch with our own story and how the Lord is moving in our lives. And there's lots of different resources on this. In fact, I will send the conference organizers um, a resource that I use in my own diocese to teach parish leaders how to share their story of faith, because I can't tell you how many times I go out and I hear people who work for the Catholic Church say, I don't think I have a story of faith. Like I don't have this dramatic like top of the mountain kind of thing. And I say, have you ever lost somebody you loved? Have you ever been in a room where someone has died and you've wept bitter tears? Have you ever had your heart broken because someone you love treated you badly? Whether you were baptized as a child or came into the church as an adult you have a story of faith whether you have a grade school knowledge of the catechism or a theological degree you have a story of faith whether you have a great public ministry or sincerely live your faith in quiet you have a story of faith that is a quote from the document from the U.S. bishops called Go and Make Disciples in 1992
3: and we don't often share those stories no. with one another and,
4: and this is the thing if you're a catechetical leader here how many people do work with catechetical leaders or catechists Hands up, our catechists or catecheticals. Quite a few of you. You know, it's going to be really difficult for you to get your catechists or get your kids in your programs to be able to share their stories of faith if you haven't shared yours first.
3: There's a question from the audience.
4: Absolutely.
0: Thank, Thank you, everyone, for your questions. The first question up is Parishes are complex, people are in different places. How do you build a bridge between those who come to church to socialize before Mass? and those wanting to pray. Both are seeking Jesus in different ways.
4: Gosh, that's an amazing question. I mean, that's really the crux of the matter, isn't it? So I think I'll repeat the question because I think I had some people... Actually, could you repeat the question? Because I think some people had some difficulties hearing that.
0: So parishes are complex. People are in different places. How do you build bridges between those who come to church to socialize before Mass and those wanting to pray, both are seeking Jesus in different ways.
4: Wow, that's a, that's a great, question. great question. The reality is that our parishes are gifted with different charisms and gifts because each of our parishes is, are different. There are 156 parishes in the Diocese of Green Bay, and I believe there are 62 here. So each of those parishes have different expressions of the presence of the Lord. And so, parish will often say to me, Where do I start with missionary discipleship? And then they'll call me when they get excited and go, You know what we're going to do? And I'll say, What? They we say, We're going to start with our parish's mission statement and logo. <laughs> and we're going to spend six months at that. And I'll say, Okay. Uh, I'm going to tell you a great mission statement, go and make disciples, and yay, you're done! There's six months of work saved! <laughs> now, I am on my parish's parish council. I'm all in for parishes. But what I think we need to look at is our, we have to grapple with our own capacity as parishes to evangelize and disciple people. So I'm going to ask somebody here, the, ge- the gentleman here, what's the name of your parish? St. Andrews
0: the Apostle.
4: St. And, Andrew the Apostle. Now, oh, this lady with the pretty scarf, what's the name of your parish? Catholic Community of the Holy Spirit, St. Andrew the Apostle. The name of your parish mm-hmm. tells me something specific about what I might see in your parish. So, I had a parish that called one day and said, you know, we're going to go through this process, logo, website, mission statement. And I said, because they're like, we're really searching for an identity. I said, oh, what's, what, what's, your, what's the name of your parish? And I knew, but I wanted them to say it. Sacred Heart. Okay. So I said, when I come down to your parish, I expect to see on your website the Sacred Heart. I would expect that the children in your school understand the Sacred Heart. I would expect that on on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, there would be some sort of parish celebration. I would expect that your parish councils would pray the prayer and would know the promises of the Sacred Heart. None of that was happening. And so I actually go into the church, and it's a fantastic, beautiful church, gorgeous stained glass windows. And I see this beautiful um, side chapel. And I say, what's the name of this area? The side chapel? (laughs) And I said, I have a feeling that if you revisit the construction of your church, you're going to see that that was the chapel of the Sacred Heart. So I think one of the ways that we can grapple with our ability to evangelize is to look at our charism that's given in the unique name of our community. It does mean that because parishes are such a complex ecosystem of pieces all moving together, you're going to, in order to have your parishioners have a healthy spiritual diet, you as a staff have to have a healthy spiritual diet. So the liturgy of the hours is the official prayer of the church. We should be praying that. We should also have rosary, divine mercy. If you're Franciscan, I love the prayers of creation and the canticles that they have. You need to be able to nibble around the edges to have a healthy Catholic spiritual diet. And your parish should be able to provide for some of those experiences, especially at Mass.
3: So I hear you saying that sometimes we spend a lot of time on things that are peripheral rather than being grounded in the identities that we've already been given and the solidity and depth of being grounded in prayers according to that identity. There might be another question from the audience.
0: This is our last question. We do appreciate everyone's question, but we have a time crunch, so we'll try to have one more question here. What is the effective way to start changing the parish process of how it's always been done and not alienate the mature members?
3: Oh,
5: that is worded very interesting. (laughs) Which is nobody
0: here,
3: of course. Nobody. (laughs) Nobody.
4: So I think think we've got to look at a couple of different things. But one, we want to conserve the beauty, the traditions, the teachings of the church, right? Yes. We need to liberate some of our small tea traditions in ways that make sense for young people. I'll give an example of that. For any of you that are youth ministers, and I have been a youth minister myself, it's very unlikely that you have ever had a young person come to your office between the hours of 9 and 5, and tell you their story. Mm. They're just not there. We have got to re-examine why we do the things that we do. Why do we open at nine and close at five o'clock when the people of God are not present? Okay. We've got to start looking at all of those things that are draining our effectiveness and starting to adapt the principle of what Pope Francis called, called flexible deliberation. Change is a constant. The religious landscape of the United States has been transfigured and transformed by things like social media, by young people. And we have to be able to meet those needs. You know, I I do think this this comment had a nuance on the end about um, people who might not want to change. And I've heard people refer to them as the frozen chosen or... um, (laughs) Are our, our, our cave dwellers consistently C A V E consistently against virtually everything?
5: <laughs>
4: um, so you know, but we have to. Before we say, oh, we're going to do this to our preachers, we have to ask: Are we willing to change? Am I willing to pray with my co-workers? Am I willing to go out? Am I willing to look at my program that runs from September to May? And if somebody turns up at our parishes in June and says, I love Jesus, we say, come back in October when we have something going. Those kinds of things we have complete flexibility over. And so the wonderful thing I often tell parishes is this doesn't require a whole lot of money. In fact... It requires no money to emphasize people and not programs, and to accompany people. We can walk with people very differently just by changing some of the things that we have become so entrenched in.
3: So Julianne, there is both a simplicity but a great vitality in your message. And for me personally, it's it's almost a relief. The, The burden of programs, the burden of doing things doesn't have to be on our shoulders. We emphasize the people in our lives we share our stories, we draw their stories out, we pray together, and we have a strong foundation for, for for going forward. I want to thank you very, very much for the vitality that you bring, for uh, just the, the spark of enthusiasm, for the gift that you are as well to us. So thanks very much. Domian, thank you for
4: you. hey, welcome. Thank you.
1: a great conversation for us to start our convocation today and I want to anchor to something I'm slightly blinded I'm going to anchor to something that Julianne said and you've heard us talk about it now from stage is the importance of story and knowing what your story is so I told you earlier about how remarkable you all are and how I was in a position to share with the steering committee really the beautiful people that our good and holy pastors have chosen to join them in the work of the church. So it's really important around what we do while we're here and what we do after this, because the value of our story is the value of the work that we will do going forward. So what I would like to do now is tell you that what some very beautiful people across the diocese have agreed to do for us while we're here is they're going to step to the podium throughout these three days and tell us their story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to welcome Derek Longcrier to the stage, who is actually from Atlantic City and the parish of St. Monica. So he is going to share. Thank you.
6: Thank you, Donna. Good afternoon, everyone. I am most grateful to be here with you today. A wise man once said, if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, one thing you can know for sure, he did not get there by himself. (laughs) And with that being said, I'd like to thank Bishop Sullivan, Father John, And all of you have worked so hard to make this convocation a reality and for giving me this opportunity for sharing my story. My relationship with God begun at an early age in Atlantic City, right here, born and raised. And my first spiritual guide was my mother, like most of you. She taught me about God and showed me what faith looked like. She prayed God would show me the way. Then life's challenges began. My oldest brother started getting into trouble going in and out of prison. My mother would pray that God would intervene and show him the way. I asked God to help my mother to be strong. But I wasn't sure God would hear me. The only thing I knew for sure that I was determined not to be the source of my mother's tears. Our family's, our family life was, after that, would change forever, it seemed. When my brother was given a life sentence, it wasn't long before I began to stray away from my beliefs And started running away from God. After a while, I finally realized that God, that God, God loved me. And this is not what he had for me in store for my life. And this is not who God wants me to be. And I went back to the Baptist church and served as a deacon or a servant to the servant of God. But because of the differences with the pastor and the church leadership, the church was separated. I prayed that God would order my steps and by much prayer and study, I was led by the urging of the Holy Spirit. In the morning of October 2009 to the Catholic Church, God showed up in my life. He showed up when, miraculously, my brother was released from jail and his life sentence was overturned. My mother's prayers have been answered. And what's more, my brother became a prison chaplain of the prison he once was incarcerated. Isn't God good? God showed up. God showed up after the death of my son and granddaughter. I asked God to make this a dream and then wake me up and let it not be true. My wife and I were in denial. The truth was too painful to accept. Once again, God showed up. Thank you, Jesus. And that's why I show up for God. I found that there is no wrong decision when you put God first. There's no fear when you put God first. It is up to us to open up our hearts to let God into our lives. God continues to fuel me and I'm certain that he will renew your spirit and strengthen you so you can move your faith forward. I'd like to end with a familiar story but one to remember. A storm descends on a small town and the downpour soon turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church porch. Then someone comes in a canoe. Better get in, preacher. The waters are rising fast. No, says the preacher, I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still, the waters rise. Now the preacher is up on the balcony. When a motorboat appears, come on, preacher. We need you to get out of there. The levees are going to break any moment. Once again, the preacher is unmoved. The Lord will see me through. The levees break, and the flood rushes over the church. Only the steeple remains visible, with the preacher clinging to the cross. When a helicopter appears, (laughs) grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists the Lord will deliver. And predictably, he drowns. A pious man, the preacher goes to heaven and says, God, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? God shook his head. I tried to save you. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. (laughs) God shows up. We just need to notice. He showed up for me, and He'll show up for you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you, Derek, for sharing your story with us. There's a, there are elements to Derek's story that resonate with all of us, right? Who needs tissues for some of Derek's stories? I had a beautiful experience of meeting Derek about a week and a half ago, and we shared our stories with each other in preparation for coming to this. It's always tough to be the first one at an event like this to take the stage and share your story. So it was really, really a beautiful experience for me to interact with Derek, myself, and then to watch him come up here and share it with all of you. So it was really quite a remarkable thing. Derek, I can't see you in the lights where you went to sit, but thank you. From the bottom of my heart, You did a beautiful job. So there's a couple things I would like to talk to you about. Uh, one is the importance of story so you're going to hear that as a theme and you'll be you'll notice the importance of harnessing your own and if you think about what Julianne had shared with us in her presentation also the conversation that she had with Josh that's going to be really important for us as we go forward to the people that need God we have to tell our stories of God so that's a really critical piece for us And I'm going to paraphrase a quote from St. John Paul II, that what compels people the most is witness. By giving your own witness, people are compelled more by witness than they are by teachers, no offense to teachers, by teachers, teaching, theology, it's our own personal stories. So that's a really critical piece for all of us to remember as we move through this week and we move back out across the diocese and into our parishes, is how are we going to share our own stories? So I want to thank Julianne and Josh and Derek for everything that you offered to us this afternoon. It was a remarkable first day for all of us here.